Welcome to Spin It, a business podcast that takes you into the lives of some of today's most influential leaders, entrepreneurs, game changers, athletes, and many more. On Spin It, we take a deep dive into the lives and journeys of our guests to deliver real, unfiltered, and unscripted conversations that will surely inspire hope and promote change. We focus not on their current success, but on the obstacles and challenges that they faced along the way that often doesn't get talked about. How they battled adversity, getting up and being knocked down when all of the odds were stacked against them. Today, I'll be talking with Trond Arn Unheim, who is the futurist, entrepreneur, and tech genius. Trond grew up in Norway, but ended up initially coming to the U.S. after following a girl. His fascination with Legos as a kid and a deep want for exploration led Trond to build new companies and new technologies for a living. Trond found multiple startups, including Yegi, a game-changing search engine, and the MIT Startup Exchange, a way for him to connect industry to startup. Today, Trond hosts the Futurize podcast and has also written several books looking at tech disruption. In this episode, we get a glimpse into the mind of Futurist, so stay tuned. Trond, welcome to the show. We are so happy to have you. Thank you so much for joining. I'm super excited. Thanks. So before we start, I want to talk about that you just ran the Boston Marathon. Yes, I did. First time. How was it? It was an amazing experience. I think it's not just running it. You know, everybody who has run it realizes that it's all about the people cheering on you, the preparations. It's it's so much more than just one day of, of running it, but it, it was actually exhilarating. It was really That's cool. incredible. How long did it take for you to train and what training mechanisms did you use? Well, I kind of just decided this summer, which is very unusual. <laughs> So it took me like three months, uh, which is not really, in a, all honesty, that's not really enough training, but it was enough to get me around there. Have you run marathons or half marathons or 5Ks or anything before before this whole thing started? I think I ran a 5K 10 years ago. So you're not a runner and you run a marathon in three months? Yeah. Yeah. I trained for it. Oh, yeah. For so, three months, which by the way, yeah. low training is considered nine months, but you did it in three. Yeah, I mean it's possible. Turns out it's it's possible. So, okay, tell me what you tell me one of the things that you thought would happen that didn't happen and then tell me one of the things that you didn't think would happen that happened. Well, even just running the marathon I never thought it would happen because I've had a, you know, a knee operation and it's actually stopped me from running. 10 years ago, I had gone through like two bouts of like physical therapy to figure out why I couldn't run, you know, at all. So I had almost given given it up. And uh, the second time, however, I went through the therapy, we figured out like a, an incredibly simple solution. It turns out that there was a muscle imbalance. That's at least what they're saying. So with a little bit of training on one leg, I was able to start running with much less pain. And then suddenly the pain kind of dissipated. Wow. But I never thought I would run far. So I always kept it at 5K, you know? Right. Uh, and then this summer, for some reason, I was feeling good, and I thought, I'm becoming an old man. If I'm going to run the marathon, which I never really wanted to do, why don't I just do it this year? So, wow. that's what and, and what did your wife say about this? Uh, she thought I was crazy, but that's not news. Yeah. I'm so. like, that's another podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I want to talk about Norway, and I want to talk about you growing up as, as a child in Norway. Can you tell me about what it was like growing up and what your relationship was with your parents? Yeah, so I don't know what you know about Norway, but it's a it's a country that's changed quite a bit. So when I grew up, you know, the country had just found 
oil, petroleum, you know, and it was sort of changing quite a bit. But, you know, in the early years, we were somewhat remote. There was like one TV station. We had a black and white TV. It was uh, kind of a little bit what you might imagine if you sort of think of a northern remote place. But very rapidly, as I grew up, it internationalized. And, you know, my, my parents were kind of academics and teachers, so we, we traveled quite a bit. I was thrown out of a casino in, in, in uh, Vegas when I was two for going in with my parents, obviously. But, uh, you know, not, not a lot of people can say that. Wow, that's crazy. They didn't let you in? Apparently, you can't take kids to the casino. Who knew? I take mine all the time. Yeah, yeah right? <laughs> no, growing up in Norway was fantastic. But I, I will say, and I think I blame my parents for this. I've always uh, wanted to travel and see other places. So I could never, you know, sit still uh, up, up in Norway. Like many Norwegians, you know, we travel a lot. And as I said, we, we were lucky enough as a country to Kind of generally, most people have quite a few resources, so we do travel a lot, and I certainly did that both during my studies and and later. And uh, now, I think I've lived outside of Norway for you know almost twenty years. Wow, that's incredible! What's what's one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about Norway? I, well, you were starting with it. You're, we that we are shy and don't speak <laughs> a lot and don't speak talk to strangers and that kind of thing. It's actually partly true, but it doesn't hold for everybody. And, you know, as you can see, they kicked me out. So right. I might not be exactly. No, typical. you're just a big troublemaker all the way around. <laughs> yeah. What's the biggest difference between Norwegian universities and U.S. universities? You know, they're smaller and they're unknown. So that's not a great thing. Other than that, I think we have a few decent ones. We don't have that many. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a new kind of reform. So I think there's many more than I now can mention. They didn't used to be called universities. They were like colleges and stuff before. But uh, when I grew up, there were, you know, essentially three turning into four universities. Now there's, like I said, like dozens. But uh, it's a small place. So, you know, you have like two or three options and that's what you do. Otherwise, you know, a lot of people studied in in England or or indeed, you know, a lot of Australia was popular at the time. So it's not like you're not short of choices if you have kind of financial means. So that's is an open, small country with a lot of choices to, you know, for where to go. But clearly, the country itself is, you know, and should be known for its nature, you know, it's a beautiful place, but it's not somewhere where a troublemaker, you know, stays the, their whole life. So you decided to come to the US. <laughs> I don't know. What brought you here? Yeah. I mean, it was different things, right? I've, I've been in and out of the US for many, many years. So the first time it was my parents brought me here on, on one of their sabbaticals. The second time I think was also one of their sabbaticals. So I actually went to high school here for a year. And then the third time, I think it was a girl that brought me here. That does happen. Uh, and then, yeah, the last time it was also a girl, but I guess we just decided uh, it was a good, good time to move to the U.S. for, for some years. Wow. And then you just wanted to make it your home. Curiosity and women is what drives There you go. Hey, yeah. you said it, not me. <laughs> Moving right <laughs> along. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So why did you make the decision to create your own search engine when Google had already taken over the world? This was the number one question when I told my team that I was going to be interviewing you. Five people asked, why did he do this when Google already had it? And I said, let's ask him. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, maybe not a smart decision, but the point is Google hadn't solved any of the fundamental problems that we have 
as a society. So that's what I wanted to solve was, uh, you know, how do you get smart fast and, and, and you know, really smart? Uh, what Google does is just it outsources some of that problem to you. You have to come up with a good question and then it lines up a bunch, a bunch really of answers. And then they have simplified it so that you don't realize exactly what you're missing. And I just never felt that the search uh, UX, the, the, the way that it displays the results, it doesn't work the way my brain works. Oh, interesting. And it's not my natural way of learning in any way, shape or form. I like discovery-based learning, and that's really not possible using kind of a very flat search engine. So I think, look, we're heading for better things. It's just that creating something, you know, in the middle of Google's heyday was perhaps somewhat far-fetched. But, you know, after I started trying to do that, search has split into many different things. Like product search now, of course, is much better on Amazon. So it's not like Google had their monopoly very long. And, and, and I knew this, you know, companies don't really dominate anything for very yes. long. But the time when I chose to do this, everybody, including most investors, thought I was completely nuts. So I have a question that is actually a personal question. I wonder if you know anything about this. I was sitting with a Nike executive one time. We were out to lunch and he told me this. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I'd love to hear your take on it. He told me that the fastest and most accurate way to get the correct answer on Google is to type in the question and put the wrong answer or put like the furthest fetched answer possible. And then your first three answers are generally the correct or the, or the most correct answers. I have never tried that strategy. It sounds like he knows what he's talking about. I just think like the whole setup is based on kind of averages and stuff. And I'm more of an original type thinker. So the way that I think doesn't follow these patterns. Right. So even if I can control my own search phrase, the amount of control that that gives me is not satisfactory. Right, because it's only within your parameters of what you're able to think about. Yeah, I mean, if you just want to visualize something very different, think of a old school library that's physical in nature where you're walking through bookshelves. So serendipitously, you know, even just you know, like you're reading something and then you're like stumbling back because you get so interested in it. and then you stumble into some other book in a completely different bookshelf or you're just walking by and you know you're just walking by the A's and you're going to the to the F's. Now suddenly you're discovering a different book. So, but you are generally in the vicinity and in the mindset of discovery. Yes. And um, look, I'm not complaining about them. They did a wonderful thing for their time. It's just that it's, it hasn't solved humanity's biggest problems. And I wanted to do something... I had a very specific set of use cases in mind. I wanted I wanted to be able to find very sensitive me medical information or medical knowledge very very fast. I wanted to solve a problem. Like my father needed, you know, to figure out if I could send him to a different hospital if there were clinical trials available. This was before clinicaltrials.org or anything like this. So I wanted to basically build a tool that could turn anybody into a medical expert over a weekend which was my use case. Right. And then other things, you know, just generally, I think it's unfair that you need to go to the assumption that you need to go to brand name for your college to get a top degree when the knowledge actually is, is out there and the people that could teach it to you, you know, are generally available. So um, Trond, when you so. were, when you were doing this, when you were creating this and granted, maybe it wasn't the right time. Maybe it was, who knows? Um, whenever you were going out and you were talking to people, what were you saying? Like one of the things I want to get to with our listeners here is I want to, what we talked about previously was failing and what it looks like and, and how, how do you bounce back? And, and are you really failing if you're learning and all of these kind of different questions when you were 
creating this company? First of all, did you go out for investment? Yeah, I went out for investment. I got angel investment after a while. It just took quite long. So, you know, angels are of a very different mindset. They're typically much more open-minded. It's a bit more of a personal uh, type investment. It's much more based on trust. So either trust of me or trust of someone that they trust that then trust me. And it's a different relationships. You know, it does work that way with VC investors too, but at that stage, I didn't have those connections at that level of depth. So, you know, what I had access to was angels. How did I present it to them? Yeah, like, what are you saying? I mean, already there's got to be naysayers. There's got to be doubters. I mean, Google's well on its way. What are you saying to them to make yourself different or to, you know, you just said it very succinctly for me. You're like, look, I wanted everybody to be a medical expert in a weekend. How are you pitching this to these people? Well, I think the challenge I had, it was that, I found that I had to invent a different pitch every day because people didn't fully understand the use case because it was so obvious. What I was trying to create is so obviously needed that it sounded stupid when it was presented. And I think that was my problem. And then it also sounded wildly ambitious and too generic. And this is actually not unusual for business ideas because, you know, later and, and during, I have worked with thousands of entrepreneurs and many of them far better than me, actually, which, you know, is kind of interesting and, and, and comforting because you can actually work with great talent. And it's, it turns out perhaps to be more, more of my talent is to, to find and identify others who have unique things. But anyway, I do think that presentation skills does get you somewhere. But if your idea is of a nature that it either looks so obvious to outsiders or that it actually hasn't been said before, it hasn't been verbalized before, you're in trouble no matter what you do because it's not a, any n number of rhetorical tricks or my problem was I had, you know, I just had to keep reinventing the way I spoke about it. And I had to, you know, sometimes I had to focus on the knowledge part. And then I try to say, well, it's not just knowledge, it's actually about connecting people. So then I started calling it, so this was, Yegi is the company, and it was called an insight network is what, you know, with a great friend of mine who who, who works in communication and, and, and in marketing, and he sort of came up with that term for what I was trying to say. But even that turned out to be misunderstood. Well, I think, like, right, because you because you almost had two of the biggest things, right? So you had, number one, you had to educate the market, which is what you right. never want to do. And then the second- You don't want to do, I wish I had this idea 10 years later, it, you know, and had all that energy yeah. right now. Right, you were too early. Okay, so you had to educate the market, number one. And then number two, you weren't, quote, niched down enough. And those are, and there's, those are the, there's three main problems when you go to get money. And you hit two of them out of the gate. So that yep. must have just been really hard. Tell me, what are some of the lessons that you learned from, from that time? Well, the first was maybe, you know, founder isn't my top skill in and of itself. Secondly, yes, I am early with many things. That goes with the territory when you, when you are actually more original. And I don't mean original as in like I think I'm Einstein or something, but I just think that I see in certain fields uh, where I go deep, I see where things are going in a different way than many people. It's not that I'm, you know, it's not like I see the future, but I do think that one of the lessons from me was that it's probably easier for me to write and speak and present sort of visions of the future. Thereby, uh, luckily, uh, I found out that you can actually call yourself a futurist. That is more of a role that fits with me. You know, the kind of the visionary that speaks not just on behalf of my own ideas, but I'm speaking more in terms of, you know, what I think will happen given 
certain things playing out, you know, based on forces that I'm reading about, understanding, projecting forward, that kind of thing. So I, I certainly have a mindset that's geared towards the future, always been interested in macro trends, long-term processes and things like that, which is actually a big weakness uh, that I had as a founder because I was much more concerned about world, where the world was going in 2050 than I was about, you know, whether I would earn money tomorrow. Right. Or, or today. And that's, that's both a problem professionally and personally because... Well, of course, because if you don't care about what most people yeah. would say is success in business, which is, you know, getting to a pay, you know, getting beyond a paycheck, getting, you know, getting bigger and bigger sources of revenue from clients that are willing to pay you over time. If that's not a driver, you know, you have sort of checked out of one of the most important checkpoints yeah. or, or kind of indicators of what, uh, what your business should be doing. And I think that that's so important for our listeners to hear because um, I often get asked, you know, through coaching and through consulting, you know, what's the dif difference between a founder and a, a you know, venture capitalist or, or a venture partner? And it's actually really interesting that, to see how it morphs because a lot of founders don't become VCs. But more often than not, if you're a successful founder, then people want you to continue to see what you saw in your own company and to help other companies along. But what I have found in doing this, and we'll talk about Silicon Valley in a little bit, but what I have found in Silicon Valley was the valuations were so insanely fluffy. They were so crazy. Like some of the things that got evaluated for like a billion dollars, you're sitting there scratching your head going, you just now told me to address the gap. You just now told me to niche down. And now you have this massively huge valuation that you just can't calculate or process in your head. So when you were going from founder to venture partner, and now all of these, like you said, these young entrepreneurs with massively great ideas are coming to you. How do you vet them? Talk to me about what's your personality around all of these ideas getting tossed at you. How do you vet them and tell them, go back to the drawing board, or this is really good, change this, this, and this? What does that look like for you? Uh, well, for me, I would say this is one of the things that I learned from my own entrepreneurship is to never give too firm of an advice, because I can't tell you how many horrible mentors I've had throughout my time. And this sounds great. It sounds bad to say this, but I try not to think of myself really as a mentor in that sense. I think you can say, I'll, I'm passing on this opportunity, or you just don't say anything. You just sort of say, okay, thank you. But to criticize somebody else's idea where you don't know the gestation of it, you don't know how far it is, you don't know who they really know, maybe they haven't presented it the way they will now turn on and, and present it to the next person. Maybe they had a bad day. You simply don't know. I'm not making any assumptions. I make assumption about me, whether I am willing to present this to the next person who will maybe take it on as an investment in my VC firm or not, but to claim that you really are going to say you need to go left instead of right with this idea or, yeah, you don't, you don't have a very big market here, I think that's enormously pretentious. And history has shown, now that I have more perspective, history has shown that you are usually wrong about those things. And especially VCs are usually wrong because why? They develop this enormous confidence. Well, either they fail, which some VCs do as well, or you know they're like market average. Mm -hmm. You might as well just go to the stock market. But if they do have a successful fund, they will inadvertently turn around and think that they are the gift to humankind based on having done 12 investments. Right? So a completely quantitative, qualitative sample. And they make all these pronouncements about a thesis for where the world is going, yep. which they're completely justified in, you know, everyone can have a thesis. It just should, 
and hopefully isn't just based on those 12 investments and, you know, whatever a number of entrepreneurs they have met. Because, you know, as we know from statistics, you know, unless you have a thousand, you don't really have a number to work with. So, okay, maybe they have met a thousand entrepreneurs and that starts to matter. But even then, you don't have the systematic background on all the variables that went into those companies. So unfortunately, investments at this stage, at this early stage, it's a little bit like rolling the dice. So tell me what you look for. What's the number one? I'm not, by the way, I'm not letting you off the hook with this. I'm just prefacing this. What is sure. the number one thing that you look for when presented an opportunity? So look, I'll tell you this. I actually have a master's thesis in making decisions for, you know, in terms of quality decisions. And the people I interviewed, they ended up with the same conclusion that I have. At the end of the day, you can say whatever you want and I can explain it and maybe I can sort of, you know, give substance to it for you. I can give you like criteria that I'm using, but at the end of the day, it's a gut feeling thing. I love that. So do you, do you like say that to people? Do you just go, I have a really good gut about that? Or do you like, or do you say those things or is that something you keep internally to yourself? Yeah, you have to keep it internally because you know, if it's a good feeling, then obviously that's a nice thing to share. But if you have a bad feeling, which is the same thing, you, you, you can't really share that because it's, it's very negative and it's not helpful. But let's talk about no, you. I want to talk about you. That's how I got my nickname, Dream Killer, because I was like, have you vetted this properly? This is not good. <laughs> and then the other VCs were like, you know, and I was like, I, I mean, I'm just saying like, there's like a lot of competition in this area, but. <laughs> Look, what people will say, and I'm, in, I'm still trying to understand this. What is a good startup concept or a good startup team? Most people will resort. Not, nowadays, it's very popular to say, oh, it's the team. I look at the founder. I look at the founders and I look at the team. But even that is pretty shallow because, you know, have you ever tried to interview someone for a job? Humans are really horrible at interviewing. Yeah, but we, we make, I, was, we that make rash was that judgments. rhetorical? Because I'll tell you, they bring me the, the resume and I rip it up and I say, hey, let's go for a walk and talk and let's have coffee. And seven minutes yeah. into it, I'm like, they're hired or they're definitely not coming near my team. And I have a 1% turnover in all the companies I've created. Well, look, there's outliers to everything. You and I happen to enjoy the form of interview. Yeah. yeah. And that's a skill. And But even, even as very good interviewers, um, I think, you know, you might be good at different things around the interview. You could be good at getting people to speak their truth. Mm -hmm. But whether the interview itself, you know, an hour's interview... Can you predict what I'm going to do 10 years from now based on an interview? No. no. I mean, but here's what I can predict. So that you can. I can predict this. I can predict that you will. I shouldn't say I can predict because that sounds a little bit too. I don't, I don't want to sound pretentious at all. I've been very good at predicting if I want to be in the same boat with you. I've been very good at being like, you know what? I love that Trond is super, super even killed and that he actually thinks about things that, you know, like the metrics and the, and the data, he thinks about the things that maybe I haven't made a stronghold in this. And so I just want him in the boat with me because he's going to be such an asset to the team. And, and we grow together in so many forms, but in other forms, he continues to grow in areas I wouldn't even think about. Well, so here's the thing, humans, you and I, we're good at perceiving difference. The problem is you don't exactly know what that difference entails. Yes. And then we are very good at perceiving similarity. So we, we would be very good at hiring someone we think kind of essentially would continue, uh, you know, our, our views. That's obviously usually a problem in the workplace because when you start doing that, you know, you're, you're interviewing, you know, you're hiring cronies that aren't really contributing. But then if you hire for difference, 
I mean, you just don't know what you're getting. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's very hard to, to pick winners in any field, whether you're picking a team to work with or you're picking a startup team. The best I can tell you is have as many, and this is the academic answer to this, have as many independent viewpoints as possible, which is why I think generally if you are, I mean, and this is why, you know, for the longest time, most startup founders came from Harvard or something, you know, like the VCs were all from Wharton and they picked, uh, you know, CEOs and founders from Harvard because, well, someone else had done the vetting for them and they trusted those, you know, acceptance criteria to these colleges were really hard and you sort of thought, intelligence must mean, and then Ivy League must mean. But you see, that gets you into much bigger trouble. So you, you have to have much wider criteria. So it's not just about finding one elite source of truth. It sort of goes back to what I was trying to do with Yegi. You need to democratize the sources of truth. Absolutely. And you need to multiply those sources. And, to, and once and you to have your... independent sources, then you can start thinking you you know, you have some data material you can build. And up. to your point, I think you, you really, really like brought this out a lot, Chand. I think as many data points as you possibly can get, as many different points of view as you can possibly get. That was when I was very young and kind of hiring, living in Silicon Valley. You know, it's funny. It's I remember the very first time I was 26 years old and in a hiring position. And I remember I saw Stanford and I was like, well, I could just be done now because I mean, Stanford came across you know, my list, but the position was, was not a strategic position. The position was a business development relationship position. It was creating a long-term relationship, creating trust, and then also to creating in that relationship. So like co-branding and co-technology and co-development. And I didn't do a good job. I did a horrible job because I saw Stanford. I basically looked at the columns. I saw Stanford. I saw how much they needed to make. And then I saw how close they lived. So I figured that they would never be late. They would always be on time. Like what was going on in my own head to be able to hire this? And it was exactly what you said. It was Ivy League had carried a full load, had a ton of clubs. I didn't actually transfer that knowledge or that data into what was actually really needing to happen for the position. No, and this look to me in my head and you know, my strange head, this ties back to the, the sort of the life quest that I have put in front of myself, which is I want to basically democratize knowledge. And I think that knowledge is something and insight is something we should strive for. So I want more people to have the abilities and the possibilities of, of approaching, I guess, wisdom in a certain sense. So, you know, if I can help facilitate that through either entrepreneurship, supporting founders that are doing so, or building like I was trying to do, or still am in certain ways, building platforms that are making knowledge accessible or sharing it. I mean, fast forward, right, to last year, I, I built a podcast. And one of the reasons that's so fulfilling for me is that I'm able to put those same experts that I really wanted to put into my kind of quantified systems online, I'm simply now conversing with them. So there's a limit to how many conversations I can have. It doesn't scale at the level of software, which I sort of wanted my system to, to do and, and have built, you know, a demo to, to try to make it scale at that level. But I can at least bring these conversations with very smart people to a very broad audience through the podcast. So there's always ways. And I think you asked me, you know, what is failing? I have discovered that the learning from failing deeply is so valuable. You know, the Silicon Valley gospel is fail fast. I have come to believe that failing slowly is immensely valuable. 
maybe this is going back to why to Norway and Europe and like some Freudian thing where you're like, you know, you'd got it, you see the tragic, the light points in the tragic. But there's something there, which is if you don't allow yourself to move on until you've fully explored whatever you think you needed to explore, the learning that you get from that is usually so much deeper and it's so much more personal. And based on that foundation, you can kind of go anywhere afterwards. So I've written now, what, four books based on this experience, not talking about the startup, but the knowledge areas that I was mapping in my own head. And, and there's, you know, at least three or four more books coming. Now, is that related or uh, at all? I mean, they, they're kind of different things. They're just different mediums for the same quest. I'm still writing about technology and the future and how humanity needs to respond to it, what governance systems we need to build. So I'm sort of doing the same thing, but perhaps at less scale. So I find that fascinating. And actually, it's one of the things that drew me to you, Trond, was you talk about the value of failing slowly, which is the opposite of Silicon Valley's mantra of failing fast. And I've always said it. I've always said it to everybody I've mentored or to any, any of my companies. I always say flip failure fast. I always say the three F's. And so when you when I heard you talk about that, I was like, you know, I always liken it to a Band-Aid. You know, do you rip it off fast and get the pain over with? Or do you go really, really slow and try and... But I can really see such a value add in exploring going so incredibly slow and feeling every aspect of it. How do you handle failure in your life, both personally and professionally? How do you take it? How do you put it into a positive or into something advantageous that you can use in the future? So I think failure isn't one thing and it's not one point. There's not one point of failure. It's easy to say, okay, well, you know, it's not making money. You clearly, if you are disappointing your investors or disappointing people around you, that is, of course, in a certain sense, a failure. But when it comes to building a business, I'm not saying that, you know, you should go for 10, 15 years marching steam, full steam ahead, even though you don't have any clients, right? That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, there's a value to learning from and trying to understand why others are claiming you failed. Because what you're doing is you're going deeper in understanding, you know, yourself and the problem you were trying to solve from different angles. Nothing great has ever been accomplished by staying on the surface of things. So yes, maybe if you fail fast, you can be commercially successful in something else. But is that your life's mission? That's what you have to ask yourself, right? So, so I'm, you know, the, the venture may have commercially failed, but I would have personally failed if I gave up the mission because it was the mission that is driving this, nothing else. But this is different for everybody. And to your point, so I'm not to your point, Chand, here's the other point I want to bring up that you had mentioned is if you fail, if you're failing and you fail fast, maybe you don't hit all aspects. Like you said, it's not one point. Maybe you don't hit all aspects of the things that are, are kind of encompassed in that failure. And maybe you have to continue to come back to those same lessons that you could have quite possibly learned, felt triumphed, if you will, to go through. Maybe you have to keep coming back to those failures since you didn't kind of slow down and take a look at all aspects of failure within that one encompassing thing. Yeah, I think there's something to that, actually, Stephanie. I think uh, if you don't examine, and, and this is not also just personal, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes the, the failure we're talking about or, you know, not accomplishing what you as a team set out to do, if you never examine 
what you are actually trying to do from all angles, you are kind of doomed to repeat the failure. So that's that's yeah. one reason why I think this whole Silicon Valley mantra, it works well. It sounds really good on paper, right? And it sounds really good like you just move on really fast. You you are quite privileged, though, if you are able to move on fast. And I'm not saying in certain, you know, there are certain situations where you, if you move on fast, like it's more efficient use of money. And to speak nothing for, you know, about the pivot, I, I think there's tremendous value in the pivot. I'm not saying you should sit there and, you know, agonize. That's not what I'm trying to say. But if things really are hard to figure out, to give that up and jump to something else just because it's hard to figure out, well, those are two different sort of epistemic strategies. It's sort of the choices you're making, but they're choices. And when you're actively choosing to move on fast, you are not exploring something that possibly could be extremely important for you, for humanity, or for whatever you know purpose it is. No, I'm glad you clarified that because it's one of the top questions that I'm asked is, when do you know when it's the right time to pivot? And Right. It's just like what you said. It's like, you know, have you really tried? I mean, you don't want to just be like throw your arms up in the air like, oh, this is really a tough problem to figure out. You really want to settle in and stay in that and work through that with yourself and with your team and be the best leader in doing that that you possibly can, which is exploring so many different options and really trying to, like you said, have so many different points of view involved so you can solve this really tough problem. So I'm glad you clarified that. But look, at the end of the day, not everybody is going to build a startup company that changes the world. That's, yes. So <laughs> one of the lessons for a founder that is changing the world, right? So one way to solve this is to say, what is my part? If you look at Guy Kawasaki, who worked with Apple and, you know, has worked with leading company and now has picked a, a very wonderful company, Canva, to work for, right? He is an evangelist. So that means, per definition, he didn't invent what, what he is evangelizing, but He's a close second, and he certainly is someone who can convincingly, you know, work up a crowd and, uh, and get attention around very important things that he has picked to evangelize about. If you pick really well, the role of an evangelist is actually, it's a religious term. There's, you know, there, there's real uh, value there if you pick the right thing. It's fun. It's exciting. Um, it's really, it's exciting to look out and see people's faces. And the other thing is too, is, is there's not as, as horrible of stigma around if it fails. Yeah. <laughs> there's at that the end too. of the day, it's not, yeah. You know, yeah. it's, uh, uh, what was your first impression of Silicon Valley? I have been driven and drawn to innovation. So Silicon Valley was kind of a dream to experience and I, really came to experience it during a, a year I, I had at Berkeley. I don't know. It was somewhat more provincial than I had expected. Tell me more. It was more more farmland. Yeah. Uh, things were further away. Like that whole Sand Hill Road thing <laughs> was like this mythical thing. And I had read the book about it, you know, how far, you know, Sand Hill Road and the, the systems of innovation that were different in Boston versus, you know, uh, sort of Route 128 versus Sand Hill Road, essentially, you know the regional divide. And then you get there and you're like, well, nice climate. And, you know, I see some vines. Cows. I don't really see the, and cows. <laughs> I don't see the big deal here. Yeah. You can barely find a restaurant. Right. You know, so there's like, what, there's a dentist restaurant and uh, nowadays a couple of hotels, like five-star hotels, and you can drink some overpriced wine. But I, I would say it's not the physical, you know, location that, I think is so 
conducive to innovation? You know, what was super interesting was for me is, is, and obviously I was in California, but the thing that was so interesting for me is I had Silicon Valley in my head, like, um, have you ever been to like an Apple campus or the, the Google campus? Sure. Okay. So in my head, I just, I pictured row after row or campus after campus after campus of that. And well, it's also so dispersed, exactly. right? So each of these little towns are far away and you're like, oh, I have to go, you know, get in my car again and drive to, you know, some other little Tinsel town yeah. and, and that's going to be the center. And then you get there and you're like, okay, can have an ice cream here too. It's it's crazy. Right? And, and not only that, but for me, whenever I was thinking, because I, I spent so much time in New York City. And so like New York City, it's just a cab. You hail a cab, you jump on a subway. I mean, that's what it is. There, there's none of that in Silicon Valley. So I was literally like looking at the, the turbines and the cows. And I was like, then you pass a, a house that's, you know, as big as a Cracker Jack box and it's $3.6 million. I was like, what is going on here? This is crazy. And Well, the funny thing is, you know, when we have almost come full circle, because if you think about how Silicon Valley originated as a myth, you know, in those days, in the early 70s, what we're talking about now, the fact that it's actually farmland was the truth that they had to fight against. So, you know, people were yeah. saying, there's nothing out here. You guys are cowboys. There's, there's really nothing, you know, you guys can never threaten us on the East Coast. So... There's a certain sort of poetic justice, I think, in that, that, you know, at the end of the day, every place, you know, it, it's only as valuable as you create it to be in your mind and then the community you build around it. So Silicon Valley did something magical. And for, for 40 years, they have been a magical place. They may not remain a magical place forever. Now, I think COVID has sort of like put right. a, a big stamp on, on the rest of the world saying, it's your turn now. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And now with all of the companies, as you all well know, like, I think Twitter and Salesforce were on the on the leading edge of this, where they said, it doesn't matter where you work now, we're still going to pay you the same salary. I don't think California saw so many exits that fast in so long. I mean, people were just jumping. Yeah, they were. But I mean, there there's also something to the physical infrastructure that has been built. So there would have to be a lot more companies jumping before Silicon Valley is going to die. Oh, for sure. Right? I'm not... I'm not projecting that they're imploding very rapidly. No, for sure. But, you know, every innovation ecosystem has their time. And I think Silicon Valley has had their prime time. That doesn't mean it's not going to continue for another few decades to be a center. So I want to get to a couple other things. The first one is the podcast. What caused you to create this podcast, which I've had the privilege of being on and you were absolutely incredible and amazing. And I just loved sharing time with you. Are you sure you're not saying that just because you are a, an amazing guest? So you, of course you had a good Well, experience. I didn't ask you yet who was your favorite guest. I didn't do that quite yet, but I'm getting there. I'm going to ask you who your worst guest was and if you published it. And then I'm going to ask you your favorite guest is, but right now I'm going to ask you why you created it. I created Futurized which is sort of the podcast I've been running for, what, 15 months now, because I wanted to explore deep conversations about what's actually happening to our future, what's happening in the next decade and beyond, where are we heading, and try to gather. Essentially, I guess I'm always trying to reproduce what was happening in my house, which was conversations that were just endless. My parents would bring in, you know, smart people, and that's how I grew up. And around the dinner table, I would always ask these questions and my father would never leave the table with a conversation uh, that, that hadn't been sort of concluded, come to its natural end. 
So I think the, the, the life of sort of the eternal conversation is just what I wanted to recreate on, on that podcast. So we explore a, a bunch of topics related to the future. It's not just sort of technology, but a lot of it is different areas of society and how they're changing. I try to bring on the best, the ideal guest for me is someone who has evidence-based views on the emerging future. What, you know, they have some evidence that they want to bring to bear and they have some ideas about what they think the future is going to be like, or what it could be like, what they fear might be like. And then we just have an open-ended conversation about how they got there, what they're thinking about. And um, yeah, that's what I enjoy. That's just absolutely amazing. So you just basically sat down one day and said, I want to just continue the conversation. So I'm going to just outreach yeah. to these amazing humans. Yeah. And you know what I realized is that I've messed up 20 years of my life with these conversations that was that were not recorded. Oh, yeah. Because there was no reason I couldn't have, like, yeah, recording equipment being what, what it was. I mean, I remember those little recorders I ran around with during my PhD interviews, but I cannot but think how many, at least how many years, maybe it's just a decade and not two, how many conversations I should have recorded before the, what, 120 I had published now. You know what's funny, Tron, is you say that, and I think about the, I think about airplane conversations. So I think about the conversations where I've had just a very, very deep and meaningful conversation with a complete stranger, and not even, not even somebody who I would name, okay, but just you know people that were maybe traveling to say goodbye, and this is the last kind of goodbye, or or people that were traveling to for a birth or for an executive position, and this is their first time, this was the reach position. If I think about those conversations, I have often thought in my head a few times about uh, creating a book of conversations that had happened, but I didn't really find any value in it until I started the podcast. And people were so like mesmerized by these, the depth of the conversation, not so much that they were like, oh, you talked to whomever it happened to be, but just the depth of people really willing to share and be so deeply authentic and genuine and share kind of their journey and their vulnerability, if you will. So I couldn't agree with you more as far as what a bummer that we didn't get to start this earlier, huh? Yeah, but you know, we started it and, and now we have it going. So you got to look at the bright side. You asked me, you know, what, what are my favorite guests? I mean, I have not had these A-list celebrities on my podcast, partly because I don't know them, partly because it's an unknown podcast, you know, uh, comparatively. But, you know, I don't think I miss that. I'm having great conversations with important people in my world, right? So my world is not the world of Instagram. Like someone who's famous to me or who deserves to, to, to be heard, someone I would want to have over for dinner on my sort of Jeffersonian dinner where we're talking endlessly, they, you know, the credentials that they bring, I don't have any problems getting those guests on. In fact, you know, nowadays with these podcast agencies pitching you guests, you have a surplus of guests. And in fact, what I find is the best guests are still the ones that come recommended from previous guests. Not because, and, and this is of course a problem because, you know, at some point you start having guests that are a little bit slanted, so it could become a problem. But, you know, previous guests know what the podcast is about. Right. And they know a little bit what I'm about. So they tend to recruit the, the person they think of that could be the best fit. So there's several layers of selection to going back to the, you know, selecting the right thing here. So it's all about honing and curating something. Yes. That's what I enjoy doing. Have you ever been super, super excited about a guest coming on and then recorded with them and you're like, Eek, I don't want to put that out? 
Besides um, my show. I have Besides been, mine. <laughs> yeah. No, yours was fantastic. I, I have, look, am I ever disappointed in a conversation? I'm very disappointed in myself if I have a bad conversation. It's my failure. Yeah. Right? If I fight with someone, if I fight with my wife, if I fight with a friend, if I fight with a stranger on the street for some stupid reason in traffic, typically, or whatever it is, like fighting in my own head, I, I'm just ashamed. It's my own problem right. more than the people. I agree. I want to talk about disruption. So you mentioned disruption a lot. You mentioned being disruptive a lot. What do you think is the largest disruption for the future of technology? Look, right now, I have a book coming out on health technology. And one of the things that I have thought deeply about is, you know, why is it that we now think health is the area that's going to be changed the most and perhaps the area that a lot of people are saying, you know, th there's the most near-term potential to make big, big changes. So, I mean, the, the instant answer would be, I think healthcare is, you know, is the area. But the problem is this, and, and that's sort of what this book is about. The technology that we have right now is very advanced and can make immeasurable changes in health span and lifespan. But the way the system is set up, the global healthcare system, we are not going to be able to achieve that. So you can forget even further innovation. Just take the innovations that we already have right now. There's an argument saying, let's just stop everything and sit down and try to optimize what we have. Because if we don't change the current incentives that we have in the system, you could have 100x, 1,000x improvements in many, many things in healthcare. And the overall system would just be spending more money and moving money around. So there would be giant, all the tech companies are turning into healthcare companies. They, this, those same companies are becoming more powerful than governments. That's happening as of like next year. I would say there are probably 10 companies that are more powerful than their governments. Why is that? Because for one, they are more important in maintaining the health and the security of their employees and, and of non-employees uh, than any government is. And that is a fundamental function of government is to maintain security and health. And if you cannot do that, or if some other source is doing that, those are the people that are the governments of the future. So now that's a scary thought, which is why I'm arguing that we need a systemic healthcare reboot. You could sort of say that we need to abolish the entire system, but I prefer to think of it as a reboot. But it's not just a reboot of the technology. It's a reboot of the uh, mindsets. And it's a reboot of the hardware and the software, not just the technology. And the leaders. Itself. Well, exactly, because technology is not really about technology, no. right? So it's about the people. It's about the business model, the incentive for change. And it's about moving the governance structures or regulations need to change. And regulations is not something that a politician is the only one responsible for. We all have created and we deserve the politicians and the systems that we live under. So we need to figure that out. A close second, you know, is probably environment, but that just brings us into a long discussion. So let's stick with health for the, for the moment. I think that that's certainly right now where I see we can make the biggest impact. It's very direct. Everybody understands. The environment is a little bit more abstract still, right? And uh, it's harder to see immediate sort of benefits for the individual. It's like more long-term. So Trond, before the pandemic, I coach and consult with a lot of Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies globally. I've tried to bring this up. I, I really have. I've tried to bring this up like, hey, you know, what do you, in a non-corporate setting, you know, going out to dinner, 
you know, you hear somebody calling to check on a loved one who might be sick or you hear, you know, just you just normal conversation. And what I have found is, you know, these are presidents and CEOs, people in the C-suite, venture capitalists, board boardroom execs. Nobody is really willing to have that deep of a conversation. So after like one, and you know, I, I love asking questions and I, I love asking questions and I always preface it with this. I'm not trying to change your mind or, or get you on my agenda. I'm really interested. Like I want to hear your standpoint. I want to hear, you know, where you came up with your information. And what I found in working with so many of the companies I'd worked with is that people are not willing to talk about it. They're not willing to talk about insurance reform. They're not willing to talk about how medical treatment happens. They'll say, what do you want? You want socialized medicine? And it's like, actually, no, I was just hoping to hear, you know, where you, where you think we are from a healthcare system, what you're hoping for in the future. And really, we couldn't get past the first one or two questions. And these are brilliant, brilliant uh, men and women. These are people that are well-educated. These are people that care. They have children. They have, you know, aging parents. They would have every reason in the world to actually commit to this, what's the problem? Uh, the problem is we have abdicated because the system is so dysfunctional that if you have the financial means to step, to sidestep the system, you have done so ages ago. Mm. So n none of us who have any kind of means are living inside of that jail that everyone else is living in. Right. So, you know, that, that whole official version of what healthcare is, very few people that I know, unfortunately, you know, have any relationship to that system. You tap in and out of it when you need it, but you have all these flexibilities and these ways around it or these networks that go on top of your own rights and you can buy yourself in and out. And as long as that exists as an option, you could say that super, super system on, on top has subsumed the other system. So they're not vested in it anymore because they don't need to be. The rest for them is charity. So mm -hmm. people would prefer the very simplistic option. This is one of my biggest criticisms in the book is that private charity, unfortunately, is severely dysfunctional for healthcare. You can see it in sort of the outcry against the Gateses and stuff, but it's not really his fault. It's just that he is symptomatic of what has right. happened. You know, you, you're putting up these kind of individuals that get to decide what the grand challenges are for entire countries. And then they start making their own sort of agendas and, and you know, eradicating this and eradicating that. It, it just brings us into very, very wrong place. It's a very wrong place to be. Where, where are a couple places that our listeners could go if they wanted to start to educate themselves? On healthcare and technology, there are many individual startups that are doing wonderful work. Unfortunately, there is no one scholar or no one think tank that has even remotely started to scratch the surface of what's needed, in my view. I think I've written one of the first books that tries to do this like mega view on what might be needed, but it's like I have just scratched the surface of that and there was no source to go to because everybody has been working inside of the system for the last few decades. They're poisoned by the yeah, system. For sure. For sure. When is your book coming out? Uh, it's coming out a month from now. Great. Well, we'll make sure we add that into the show notes. Tron, we like to end our conversation with a last question that we ask all of our guests. What is the biggest obstacle that you've been able to turn into an opportunity? I have a very poor sort of like working memory. The, the benefit of that is that I have to be very selective in terms of the th things that I focus on. Wow. If you know what I mean. Yeah, that's pretty great though. I mean, that's like, you know, you, nobody would ever think of that. I have, I have a daughter with very similar, with a very similar issue who's got low, they call it low cash processing. So it's just very, 
what's right there able for her to grab. And that's that. Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all relevant, yeah. but I mean, I would say that I think for someone who's a systemic thinker, this could be like a monumental catastrophic. Problem, right. So I have to be very, very conscious of the kinds of things that I put into my head. So I guess this brings it full circle. Why am I trying to build this, you know, knowledge insight platform that's extremely selective? We didn't go into the details, but the whole idea of why was, would it be different from Google? Would that be that it's immensely more selective? So my, the Yegi platform that I was trying to build would have like one to the hundredth thousand of number of sort of content pieces inside of it, because you'd be pre-selecting and selecting and selecting. And one of the reasons that I have this view is that I just realized that my own limitations, I do not work like a computer, but luckily memory and forgetfulness can both be resources. There's a French philosopher called Paul Ricoeur, and he, I had a wonderful dinner with him once. He, he's passed away now, but he wrote the book on memory and forgetting, memory and forgetting. And he said, you know, you, you should not underestimate how important it is to forget as part of knowledge creation. And it stayed with Fascinating. me. Fascinating. So I think when you're building something, you have to allow yourself and allow the system. This is the biggest problem with robots and AI right now. We haven't been able to design a conscious way that these systems forget in a way that resembles humans, because it is not just what you put into your head. It is what you choose not to put. And what you realize is going to slip out of your head. Do you remember the name of the book? Well, I mean, I don't know the English title, but the guy's called Paul Ricoeur and uh, it's called Memory, uh, Memoire et, et Oubli in French. I, I don't know the English okay, title. Okay. I'm going to have to look that up and put that in the show notes because I think that would be really beneficial for people to go through. Um, Tron, this has been absolutely amazing and fascinating. I love sharing time with you. Where can our listeners find you? The easiest, because my name is uh, shamefully Norwegian and long and hard to pronounce uh, Tron, but uh, they can go to Futurized futurized.org, find one of my podcasts there. That's the absolute easiest story if they care to remember my name. It does exist out there. It's unique enough that if you type in even half of my name, you'll find me online. That's amazing. Thank you again for sharing time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. Also, head over to YouTube to check out all of the live videos on our new podcast channel, Spin It with Stephanie Malik. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my my website at stephaniemalik.com.